Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of Privacy Laws, which is our final installment of our History of Privacy segment. I'm your host, Donata Strang-Skilbert, and I'm very excited to talk to our guest today, Debbie Reynolds, about the history of privacy post-internet. Debbie Reynolds, best known as the data diva, is very well known to us in the privacy field. She's the founder, CEO, and chief data privacy officer of Debbie Reynolds Consulting, LLC an advisory board member on the IoT Advisory Board at the U.S. Department of Commerce, and the executive founding member of the Digital Directors Network. So, Debbie, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast today. It's great to have you here. Can you please tell us a bit more about your career and what got you interested in privacy? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me on the show. I was really happy to be here. And I seen looked at some of your other episodes and they're really great. Uh, you have a friend of mine on one of your episodes, Kimberly Pack from United. She's a nice lady. We, we're neighbors. We live on the same street. <laughs> but the thing that started me in privacy, first of all, privacy, I had a personal interest in privacy. So there was a book that my mother had around the mid-1990s called The Right to Privacy. And Caroline Kennedy was one of the authors of that book. And my mother, I think she had seen it on a TV show. She went out and got the book. So this is back in the day when, you know, there was no Amazon. You had to actually go to a bookstore and buy stuff, right? And so that the concept of what was private and what wasn't was fascinating to her. And her interest got me interested in it. And I read the book and it just hooked me on it. And I'm like, wait a minute, like, what are my rights? You know, because this was a lot about the laws and the gaps in the laws and legal theory and stuff like that. And so I'm a technologist. And as technology started to grow, I started to see, wow, this is going to be like a huge issue, right? Because now we're collecting data that was never collected before. And we're, you know, moving into these digital areas where it's harder to keep your privacy as opposed to the way that privacy had been thought about in previous laws where it was like, okay, when you lock your door of your house, it's private, right? But if you have a phone that's listening to you, then is that private? You know, so all those questions really got me interested. And then over the years, my career had been working with um, multinational corporations that were doing data moves or they want to move data around around the world and you had to know what these laws were right because you just can't move it and then you're like oh, okay well whatever you know so you have to really know what these laws were so people from people who knew me from that work that I was doing around digital transformation started calling me up asking me hey you know these privacy laws are starting to brew you know can you talk to us about it and so one of the first companies that asked me to come I, I would speak on privacy. And one of the biggest companies, they saw me speak at a conference. Uh, McDonald's Corporation asked me to come speak to their corporate legal department. And this is around 2014, i say. So this is before GDPR. And I was like, hey, GDPR is coming. This is what it's you know, about. We had all these different questions. I mean, I talked a lot about GDPR because a lot of people in the U.S. didn't really understand it or didn't understand kind of the extraterritorial reach of it and why it was going to be a big deal. And then by the time that the GDPR really went into enforcement, PBS called me and asked me to speak on TV about it. And so people still call me about that interview <laughs> that I did on PBS. So that's kind of my privacy career start. 
Very cool. I think the first book that I read that was about privacy was a book about Henrietta Lacks. And and that was just an absolutely fascinating book. Can't recommend it enough. I think there might be a movie being made about that as well, which I will definitely watch because it's a fascinating story. Yeah, there was a TV movie that was about her. I think Oprah Winfrey was like the producer of that movie. And I heard in the news recently, there's like a lawsuit going on now around that because her her family never were compensated for the use of her stuff or her sales. And, you know, so it does, it, there are some privacy implications there as well. Absolutely. So what types of clients do you work with at Debbie Reynolds Consulting? What types of problems do you help them solve? So, well, wow, my, the clients I work with are very broad ranging. I would say it's not a particular industry. I typically work with companies that are trying to implement or work on like emerging technology. So people work in AI, people work in identity, biometrics, children's privacy, probably any, any uh, ad tech, you know, anything that's like a high risk for humans. That's really what I work on. So from, you know, fortune, you know, 50 companies down to, you know, smaller, more startups. So it's basically around the, the risk area of privacy. So I tend to work with people who are in those high risk for those emerging technology areas. So the types of problems I solve for clients, I work with them definitely to educate them on privacy. But uh, a lot of times when I work with companies, they want to work on maturity and they want to eliminate barriers to adoption. So they want to move into a new market. Maybe they're a new player in a market. Maybe they're an existing powerhouse in a different market and they want to pivot and they want to open up into a new market. So I try to help them move in those areas. And thankfully, I work a lot with companies at a design level. So I'm working with them before a lot of time, before they're implementing or before or as they're developing a tool because they don't want it to become a legal issue, right? So a lot of times I'm working with them before it gets to the legal department. And I, I uh, obviously I work with compliance. I work with legal people as well, but they realize that my work or my skill with them is very different because I'm like a technologist and I sort of bridge that gap between the two. And I've done, you know, tons of trainings and tons of education with lawyers and also a lot of business units around privacy and how it relates to them. So I was just on a call this morning with an automaker about generative AI. <laughs> so it's pretty fun. I really enjoy the work that I do. And, you know, it's great that people reach out to me and ask me to, to help them out. I'm happy to do it. It sounds really fun to work on the most kind of cutting edge legal issues and privacy issues and technology issues, as well as privacy by design. That sounds like a really fun job. So let me ask you about another fun job that you have, which is working uh, with the U.S. Department of Commerce and as an advisory board member. What is that like? Yeah. Well, well, first of all, I have to say a disclaimer. So nothing I say is like, you know, official to the advisory board and I'm, yeah. you know, just one of a member. But uh, it, it, first of all, it's really interesting. So it is a panel of 12 people that were selected uh, by the U.S. Department of Commerce, 12, only us 12 in the U.S., we're all from different backgrounds, which are, these are my favorite types of projects where we're not getting together because we're the same. We're getting together because we're different. So everyone has like a different lens that they look through. And so, and the, the, this board, 
it was developed as a result of a law that was passed to say, okay, you have to get the outside experts. So you have to come in and do these meetings. And so the meetings are open to the public. Uh, we're going to write a report. Uh, we're finishing a report now that's going to go to Congress and the federal working group and all the government agencies around privacy. Thankfully, you know, I'm the head of the privacy part. Right. So that's my, <laughs> that's my, that's my uh, contribution to this group. But the cool thing I enjoy about this board is that, you know, privacy is such a horizontal issue that it cuts across all these different industries and different things. So where there are some people in the board who are very industry specific, you know, in a certain parallel where I get to work across like all these. So to me, it's fun. It's great. I've been able to meet some really cool, high-level people. And, and this is great because, I mean, talk is cheap, right? So you can talk all day, but it's like, this is like a roll up your sleeves thing. You know, hey, we need your advice. So we need to know what we need to do at a federal level. What can we do to support either innovation, remove barriers to adoption? One really cool thing I really love about it is that, you know, this is for the U.S., right? So for all people, not just corporations, not just business people, but you know, how does, uh, you know, someone's grandma understand an IoT device, right? How do they understand how to use it, how they understand what their rights are, stuff like that. So it's something that, that will impact everyone in the U.S. and also internationally, because I think the U.S. has a uh, opportunity to really lead on IoT. You know, a lot of the manufacturers here, you know, aside from chips, right, are, are in the U.S. and they're really pushing this in the U.S. So I think that we can really be a voice internationally in terms of what we do on this board. Because I know a lot of people, I've heard people say, oh, IoT, that's like an old thing. I'm like, no, it's actually new. Because <laughs> as we see all these new technologies come out, you know, they're bundling all these new technologies with these devices that they weren't these devices weren't doing that before, right? So before you think of a camera that maybe you see in a, a convenience store, maybe back in the day, all it was doing was collecting video. You know, now it's collecting audio. There are laws for that. Now it may be using databases. There may be laws for that, right? Now it's using AI. You know, now there's, you know, issues with that. So it becomes a, very complicated. So I, I enjoy it. I like tough problems. So this is uh, right up my alley. It's definitely a tough, tough nut to crack for sure. I mean, so many things that we used to use that were not IoT are today. I think you're totally right about that. You know, I have a washing machine that can hook up to an app that tells me when it's done. And being a, a privacy lawyer, I just listen for the sound of it being done. I don't necessarily connect it to the app. But, you know, one of my favorite things that comes out during the holidays is an IoT list of the most popular devices coming out that year that kind of explain the privacy issues. And I think they have a creepiness scale from not creepy at all to <laughs> creepy, which I find to be really fun. So that's that's very interesting. Yeah, um, it is. And I think, you know, it's, it's going to be incumbent upon users to get educated, right? So I would I would not advise that you go out by the washing machine and plug it up to the internet and think, okay, we're all good, right? We're... Right. I feel like that's that your wash machine, something you don't think about could be a gateway to your other devices in your house, right? Because it's on the network. Exactly. So I think you, 
when people are doing these things, for me, I want to make sure that they're aware, right, informed about what what it, what it can do. Because I think companies are very good at selling the, the benefits, but they don't really talk about the risk. And you take the risk as the consumer. Yeah, absolutely. And most consumers don't understand the risk. You know, they think, oh, well, if Samsung makes it, that means it must be safe, or that's not necessarily the case. But anyway, so let's get into the history of privacy. So the Internet was started in the 1960s as a way for government researchers to share information. And January 1st, 1983 is considered the official birthday of the Internet, as that was the day that the Transfer Control Protocol, Internet Work Protocol, was established, which allows different kinds of computers on different networks to communicate with each other. So knowing that the Internet was initially established for government researchers to share information, I don't really think that anyone at the time was really anticipating how we would use the Internet today or how big it would become. Are there any issues that affect privacy that stem from the way the Internet was initially set up? Absolutely. That's a great question. That's a perfect question, actually. Oh, yeah, right. That's true. So the Internet sprung up in in definitely in government and education. Right. So I think it started at Stanford, if I'm not mistaken. But, you know, the Internet was created to share information. It was not created to protect information. So a lot of the issues that we have now, like cybercrime and you know, also, oh, someone breached this or someone breached that. You know, we're basically swimming upstream um, when we're trying to protect data on the Internet because it was never created that way. Right. So I think the next version of the Internet, I know you hear people talk about Web 3.0. It has a lot of different features. So one of those features will be trying to find a way to protect the internet, so building in cyber and building in privacy at that foundational level in a way that it, it is not that way now, right? And so I remember, you know, companies started, you know, maybe I'm dating myself, but when I first got my first job, there were no emails, like no one wrote a memo, someone, or you went to their office or you talked to, you know what I'm saying? So like now, you know, everybody, not only does everyone have emails, everyone has tons of emails, right? Tons of email addresses. It just was not that way. So it, uh, I don't think I anticipated that people would, what's what I'm looking for? When the commercial internet started, I did not think that companies would trust it enough to like do like, you know, financial stuff, important stuff. So I was like totally wrong about that, right? But we're seeing the result of that because, you know, it's all these breaches and, you know, especially banks, they have to go so, they have to be so far ahead of everyone else, you know, so when you're banking now, almost every couple of months, there's like a new change. Hey, this is a new way we want you to authenticate or whatever. Like, so they, they have to stay ahead to try to try to minimize those threats because we're all dealing in a situation where the internet is not created to protect data. So these companies have to really invest money in it or, you know, not put stuff on the internet, right? As we're seeing. So I think in the future, the internet is going to be very different than it is now. Right now it's like, 
okay, sign up and, you know, put your data in this huge bucket that's owned by Google or owned by Facebook or something, right? Yeah. Where the future will be where people, it will be more decentralized and it will be more private and secure by design because you're only giving certain data. And so some, so your device now, your devices now will be able to do stuff that before you only could do like on a major platform. So I think that's going to make, make it very different in the future. I think we're all looking forward to a time where we all have more control over our information. I mean, I know that some people in certain states or countries have rights and, you know, I live in Illinois. I have no rights. I have no control over my personal information. So I think giving that back to the people is going to be a big thing in the future. But in 1986, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act and the National Do Not Call Registry were established to regulate telemarketing calls and automated telephone dialing. So how has the proliferation of the Internet affected these types of calls? And is this an issue that we're still dealing with today, almost 40 years later? That's a great question. Well, the, the do not call list was very popular. It still is very popular. So basically, it's the list that you go in, you put your number on, and then it forces the telemarketer companies to go on that list and and make sure that you're not on it so that they can like market to you, right? Some companies don't care. They market to you anyway. I think the thing that has happened since that, since that list came about was that, you know, you know, robocalling, robocalling was there, but it wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. And it wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now. So I think that's always a challenge. You know, you're always getting calls and now you're getting a call from AI, right? So. It's not even a person recording a message to send to you. It's like them typing it in and they choose voice and they call you over and over or different things. So I think one of the the efforts, because regulation, people have seen regulation be more successful in the telecom industry. I think at a federal level, even at a state level, they're looking at the lessons or the thing, the successes that have happened in telecom, you know, stuff like, you know, you being able to, you know, take your number with you and stuff like that, like all, or, you know, how those telecoms need to collaborate or coordinate with one another on a consumer basis. So we don't yet have that in privacy, but I think the telecom is probably a very good sector to look at for lessons learned and for successes in that area. So I think, you know, the foundational principle should be, hey, people should have control. People need to, you know, companies need to be transparent and not only transparent, like, oh, you know, here's my 80 page privacy policy and just click a button. Right. I mean, it needs to be more there needs to be more skin in the game for companies on that consent part, because just like you were saying about IOT, you know, Grandma, when she plugs in her IoT device, she may not understand what the risks are, right? But it's like, right now, it's no one's responsibility, <laughs> right? It's no one's responsibility. So there has to be responsibility. There has to be accountability at that point. And I feel like consumers have, you know, you know, unless you're a geek like me who studied this all the time or like you who's in your profession, you probably like the, the, the privacy guru in your family. It's hard to get that message out. It is. And it's hard to enforce these things, too. I mean, I've been part of the do not call list since and I looked this up the other day since 2013. 
And I still get robocalls every single day, multiple times per day, you know, and you try to block the number and all of a sudden they're calling you from a new number. Maybe you report them to the FTC and then never hear back. So I think we still have a very long way to go. And it's interesting how we started with these phone books, these giant phone books that had the the names and phone numbers of everybody who lived in that area. And now we're moving into data sets of, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of people who can, you know, who are called day and night about stuff that they never wanted to be called about. Yeah, we have an opt-in problem in the U.S. where it just doesn't exist, right? So a lot of companies, especially some very big ones, right, the major ones you could think of, they're combining services together. So they're they're getting you to say, hey, agree to this. And then when you agree to that one thing, that offs you into everything else that they do, right. right? Stuff that you didn't care about. But because we don't have any law around opt-in, basically, they can opt you in to almost anything, but then it's your responsibility as a consumer to fight your way out and they don't make it easy, right? right. I tried to com- cancel something on Amazon once, like someone had made a mistake. First of all, they make it super easy for you to order stuff, right? So you click mm-hmm. one button and something shows up at your house, but you try to cancel it. Like you dig into these menus. I swear it took me like 30 minutes to find this one thing that I want to, to cancel. And it should not be that way, right? So if I can, if I can order something one, one click, I should be able to cancel it one click too, right? Exactly. Or at least two clicks or maybe five, you know, I would take 10, right? But not like 30 minutes of trying to find stuff. So I think we have a long way to go on that. I'm not sure, you know, I see on a state level, they're at least trying to create more consent or opt-in around third-party data transfer, but not for other things. So you have whole services that are that can literally opt you. Let's say you opted out of something. Okay. They can opt you back in and then you are responsible to opt yourself back out. So there's nothing illegal about them opting you in again and that you have to opt yourself out again. That's a problem. Very, very frustrating. I think I saw on Privacy by Design Hall of Shame that if you want to opt out of LinkedIn emails, you have to go to 64 different places to fully opt out of emails. I mean, no person has the time or the ability to do that. So I think the system's set up incorrectly there. But anyway, getting back to the history of privacy. So in 1995, the EU Data Protection Directive was adopted. So what does the directive say about privacy and how does the EU approach to privacy differ from the U.S. approach to privacy at this time? Yeah. That's an interesting question. I actually recommend that people, even though the, the data directive is no longer in force, I highly recommend that people go back and read it because it's very similar to the GDPR. But the important thing that to note is that between 1995 and the time the GDPR went into force, which was uh, went into law in uh, there were a lot of international laws and different jurisdictions that were passed in privacy. And they were based on the director. And so a lot of those laws are still in force. So like for the Philippines. So the Philippines privacy law, they have a very good one, right? Is based on, has parts of it from that directive. And so if you understand that, I think you'll be able to have a better handle on, you know, any laws passed between that date are possibly from that, <laughs> have some parts of that directive. So as long as you understand that, I think that's really important. 
what the EU was trying to do when they did this directive, obviously they wanted to codify their feeling about privacy being a fundamental right in the EU, but then also they were seeing there was a divergence with happening with the U.S., right? So the divergence at that point was, okay, U.S. is creating all these digital systems. We see a, a, a problem or we see a potential harm where we can't really protect or control that data. So let's create, you know, this this directive to, so that we can talk about what we want as Europeans for our data and for our rights, right? Also, what people don't know is a parallel thing was happening with like standard contract clauses and stuff like that. So that all those things were happening in parallel around the same time. So it's, it's not a coincidence that we're still talking about standard contract clauses because those things preceded, you know, GDPR and they were started brewing like in the eighties, I would say late, mid to late eighties before this particular director came about. So, um, yeah, it's not, I, I tell people when people complain about, you know, so I was like, so what were you doing for those however many years before, right? So the GDPR, what it brought was the extraterritorial reach and it brought in fines and it put a fine point on things. So I would say the director is probably 80% of what the GDPR is, but, but it didn't have the teeth of GDPR. So people really weren't concerned about it. So they're like, oh, that's all we you know, they're not going to, you know, file a case against me or whatever. So I think that they definitely got, Europe definitely got people's attention with the GDPR, but go back and read the directive. It'll help you a lot. It's interesting because, you know, we still, as privacy professionals, I think all of us still get emails from companies who say, we're ready to start complying with GDPR. And you're like, well, what have you been doing for the last couple of years? You know, this this has been around for, for a minute. Like you should be much further along than starting to comply unless you just started kind of working into the EU market or you're thinking about going into the EU market. Maybe yeah. that, but, but still, I think it really reflects the fact that in the EU, they were viewing privacy a bit more broadly than here. Here, we were trying to kind of correct specific harms. And I think a great example is 1996, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act um, goes into effect in the U.S. So what does HIPAA protect and how did yeah. it come about? Yeah, great question. These are, wow, these are fascinating questions. Okay, so HIPAA, now the reason why I know this so well is because I live this. Right? <laughs> so I was paying attention where all this was happening. So this is a great question for me. So First of all, HIPAA is not a privacy law. HIPAA is a law about health portability data. It has a part in it about privacy. So when people talk about it, that was up to this point, probably the best, most well thought out and articulated way to talk about privacy. And the reason why we even have HIPAA is because in the U.S. we don't have universal health care. So you have to have portability where places like Europe, they have universal health care. So they don't need <laughs> data portability laws, but we do, right? So HIP, HIPAA uh, covers patient provider information. So that's like your treatment, but also like how you pay for things, different things. So, so that you can move your data. Let's say you change doctors, you change jobs, you go to this other place. It governs how that data gets transferred from one place to the other and different things like that. It tries to protect your privacy as a result of that. So that was really 
the whole point of HIPAA was like taking on a life of its own, especially because this this portability now is so different, right? So it's more digital now. Where before it was like, hey, I'll go to the doctor's office. They'll give me my paper printout of my stuff. I'll drive it over to the next doctor's office and I give it to them and they're supposed to handle it a different way. And so as we moved more to digital, it became a lot more complicated because your data isn't like a widget in a box that moves from place to place. It's now flowing like across the internet. So it creates more problems for companies, especially if they're not don't understand the risk uh, when they move into digital. And then around a, a little bit after HIPAA, there was a effort to move more into digital into, to health. But a lot of stuff in medical is still paper, right? So, you know, if you have to get an order from someone, they're faxing stuff or, you know, they're mailing stuff, you know, so it, you know, it's going to take a while uh, to get past that. I think, and some people I know, I know a couple of doctors, like they just won't go onto electronic health records, like they're still paper. So no one's going to force them to do that. But I think, you know, as long as people understand, I think what people don't understand is like they think people think that anything about their health is private and it's not. So if you go on the web or go on the internet and announce you have some type of ailment, that's not private. And so you can't stop, like, for example, your employer says, oh, my goodness, this person had cancer, so we're not going to hire them. Like, yeah. you can't stop that, right? Because that information is protected because you sort of gave it away. But then also when you're using, like, fitness apps and, like, Fitbits and stuff like that, you know, those things are protected. They're not protected by HIPAA. They're protected by consumer laws and wherever jurisdiction you're in. And those laws are much weaker than, like, HIPAA. HIPAA law, right? And they're a lot less prescriptive as well. So I think people, that's another thing people need to understand. So, you know, those, as long as uh, companies are adhering to those consumer laws, if they exist, right, it's much weaker. So I think there is a risk there for, you know, we see companies creating risk profiles about people based on stuff that they infer on their, you know, on their app. So let's say you have a phone in your pocket and you go to a coffee shop like twice a week or something like that. You know, who's to say, what would they infer, right? Maybe they infer, ah, well, of course you think, okay, the Nana likes coffee. So we're going to advertise her coffee. Or they can say, you know, it takes her a really long time to walk from one place to the other. Maybe she has some type of health issue. Maybe I'm going to sell this to her uh, insurance company or whatever. So this is like the Wild West area that we're in with data right now because basically there's so much more data. Data that we we didn't think anyone cared about, but someone cares about it and they're willing to pay for it and they're going to do stuff with it that maybe you don't know about. Yeah. And, you know, you think, okay, I go to the doctor and the information that they tell me is protected, but how much information are we sharing with these apps? Like women's health apps recently subject to a lot of enforcement actions because they were sharing data with advertising providers or selling data and all of this kind of stuff that most people don't even realize could happen. You know, so you definitely have to be careful about the data that you're sharing online with these new apps. And so 1998 Children's Online Privacy Protection Act became a federal law. 
So were parents worried about their children online during this time? And, and what risks do children face when they're, when they're in the online world? Yeah, COPA is very important because it is probably the closest thing that we have to federal privacy law, but it's for currently for children under 13, right? So in my view, it's like, why don't we extend that to everyone? <laughs> well, we have COPA for everyone, right? <laughs> because I think it would be definitely needed. So I think part of it was around parents having a concern about children, but I think what happened was... You know, Congress, they were concerned about these new technologies. You know, think about video games that just burst onto the scene in terms of digital things. There was very wild west in terms of how people were handling data of children. And, and especially as people and regulators who have children, they were like, hey, this is like an easy win here, right? Why wouldn't we want to protect children? So let's say people under 13, you just have certain things you have to do when you're working with their data. I think the thing that's happened now is that it's becoming a lot more complex. You know, we have more children uh, under 13 or under 18, for that matter, who are in digital systems. You know, they have their own phones. They're, you know, it's not just like like us growing up. Well, I didn't have, like, we didn't have the internet when I was growing up. But, you know, kids now, like, I, I literally saw a kid that was, for go on their phone and went through like a Netflix menu. I don't even know how to do that, right? But that's these this is what we're dealing with where there are so many children now that are, you know, they're playing games, they're on their parents' phone, you know, they're ordering stuff, they're pushing that one button and stuff shows up their house. So there is a need not only for education, but there is a need to protect that data of people and no companies get in a lot of trouble because they do all these programmatic advertising. So they don't know, you know, they press the button and like let, let it do magic things. They don't really care about, oh, what's the age of this person? Because before it was like, okay, promise that you're pinky swear that you're under 13 and click a box and then away you go. So I think in the future, that's not going to be sufficient. So there are things going to be in place where they're going to require companies to know more about the age of a person like you know we've seen a couple of companies like Weight Watchers so they got in trouble with the app that they had because they said okay well you know swear that you're under you know over 13 say yes and then they ask the person's birthday and they say oh my god this person's eight <laughs> you know so I mean just uh, so I think companies need to really look at that especially as we see a proposal definitely in California so California is raising the age, they call it super copa, right? Where they're raising the age from 13 to, I don't know, 16 or 18. I forget. I look, but they're, they're, this is probably going to go through on a federal level too. And it's going to be very game changing for companies. So before they're like, ah, click the box and say you're not 13. But now they're like, wait, you need to like know more about the person, but which means you're collecting more data, right? And, but then, you know, companies, up to this point, if they weren't specifically targeting children on 13, they weren't really concerned about children's privacy. But now this is going to become in the forefront because a lot of, you know, think about TikTok and Facebook, you know, all, most of these kids are between 13 and 18. So this is going to be like a maddening thing for companies that had not been accustomed to like, you know, taking those paces and doing those steps.
It's wild. When I was a kid, I had a flip phone with one phone number in it from my grandma. And that was the only number I could call. I had no internet. I had no anything. And now kids go onto Facebook, TikTok, all of these platforms and share photos and share videos and, and that stuff. I mean, you know, it can attract predators. It can put them at risk. It's also things that can follow them into their life, right? Like my husband made a stupid video when he was a kid of throwing a toilet off of the roof. Right. And at that time, it was really fun. It's what you did as a kid. But, you know, nowadays, let's say he was trying to find a job and somebody found that video or whatever. And, and maybe now it's embarrassing or, or whatever. Or maybe you're doing something that precludes you from getting certain types of jobs in the future. And the kids don't really realize that, you know. Oh, totally. Yeah. And then people just overshare, right? It's like, oh, I had a ham sandwich on Tuesday. It's like, oh, you know, beyond being annoying, what people don't know is that when you're doing these videos and stuff, it's like tracking your location. So, you know, people, unfortunately, people may have nefarious intent uh, toward you and kids don't really understand that, I don't think. Absolutely. So speaking of California, so 2003, California was the first state to implement a data breach notification law. So we've seen most other states model their own breach notification laws after California's. So what do we see with these privacy laws? Why is it important for someone to be aware of breach of their personal information? Yeah. So you're right about the breach notification. And so California is, I don't know, they're, California is the canary in the coal mine, in my view. So they tend to lead on, on privacy. They're very progressive there. They've done the work year after year, try to get this done. People follow them a lot. So not, not only breach notification, right? So breach notification, like you said, started in 2003. 2000, okay, 2003. So by 20, 2019, all 50 states had data breach notifications. A lot of them borrow liberally from California, but they're all different because I think everybody wants to be a special snowflake and they want their own little spin on everything. But I think also it's important that California having the most comprehensive state level privacy law, they're also leading in that regard. So we're, I think we're seeing Basically, the same thing that happened with data breach notification is happening with these state level privacy laws because of California. So they're very important for sure. But I think breach notification is really important for a lot of reasons. Well, first, I'll tell you, it's irritating and it is important. Okay, so breach notification is irritating in my view because I see states if they let's say they had a breach notification law. And then they they don't really want to pass a privacy law, quote unquote. So they'll go back and they'll revise the breach notification and just throw some privacy stuff in it. So you you know it looks like the law hasn't changed because the number hasn't changed or whatever, but the law may have changed. It makes it like that much more complicated to keep up with it. But the importance of breach notification and people don't really realize it, it's like you don't want to wait till you have a breach to know what you need to do about breach notification. Part of it is because some states have different ways they define a breach. They have different definitions of what personal data is, what sensitive data. They may not call it sensitive data in New York. They call it tier one, two, and three, I think, something like that around certain types of data. So if you don't know that, you, you wouldn't, you would have a hard time trying to put together 
a notice, right, for a particular state around it. So, you know, I work a lot with companies where they're maybe they're operating in certain states. Like I had a uh, a client that's a, a, a national cable provider. So they have you know, stuff in all types of states, right? So they need to know what those those laws are because there are certain ways that they need to uh, define the data that they have. And because that different definition is different from state to state, they need to know what scope or what data is captured by that those laws. So that if they ever do have a breach, they know what they need to say. They know what they need to do. Yeah, California, we saw, you know, the first data breach notification laws and they passed the California Online Privacy and Protection Act of 2003, right about the same time. And then they passed the the CCPA and we see a lot of these state privacy laws being modeled after California, which I think is really interesting. But let's go to the EU for a minute. So GDPR passed, went into effect. How does GDPR protect the privacy of, of individuals? And what does it tell us how they view privacy in the EU versus how we view it in the U.S.? Yeah. Well, okay. So the GDPR, I think, was just the next step up for the EU. You know, they built that strong foundation with the, the data directive. Part of the reason why the GDPR became a regulation is because they wanted to make sure that all member states, that it was a law in all member states, as opposed to a directive where each member state was responsible in transposing it into their laws. That meant that they had some inconsistencies. So in a way, the way that data directive was is the way that we're, we are now in the U.S. So we're like about 25 years behind the EU in terms of regulation, in my view, uh, because we're not yet there. So if we ever got a federal privacy law, it, it's not going to be as strong as the GDPR ever, but at least it would do what the GDPR has done for Europe, which is create more harmonization around those laws and uh, at least just the definitions, right? So personal, the definition of personal data in the EU is the same in all member states, right? That's very helpful <laughs> for someone who's who's trying to do business in, in the EU so that they can understand and it makes it easier for businesses. But are in addition to creating that harmonization, I think even though a lot of businesses gripe about it, it makes it easier for them to understand those laws in EU, even though member states still have, can't still pass laws that maybe are over and above or, or different in some way, not, not to counteract the GDPR, but maybe to supplement it. So companies need to understand those state, those member state specific things, especially in places like Germany and France, where they're a little bit more stickler about stuff like that. Uh, it's definitely an issue. But what the GDPR did was create a framework that since then has been borrowed from liberally in other jurisdictions. So there are sprinklings of GDPR and the CCPA. Uh, we know we see a lot of people using language in different laws like data subjects and controller and data processor. So all that language is from GDPR. So we can definitely thank them for that. So I, I think even though I have people 
friends or I have clients in Europe and they kind of gripe about GDPR. I'm like, GDPR has been massively influential uh, around the world in terms of privacy. Maybe it's a big wake-up call for C-suite folks where privacy just wasn't like a priority before, but because of the fines, I think it became more of a C-suite issue. And now we're seeing consumers definitely wake up to that. Did I answer your question? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you did. I mean, it would be nice to have a federal privacy law similar to or or at least something that harmonizes our existing situation because it's so difficult to deal with it right now. I mean, you have privacy laws calling it personal information, personally identifying information, personal data. And all of that is just the very basics of the privacy law, you know, and here it seems like we're targeting, again, targeting very specific harms like targeted advertising or automated decision-making, but we're not really thinking enough about these broad-based privacy foundations, I think, and that's yeah. that's a really big issue. Yeah. Well, that, now I remember what I was going to say. So the big difference between the EU and the U.S. is that the EU's privacy laws are based on privacy being a fundamental human right where privacy is not a fundamental human right in the U.S. So a lot of our laws are based on consumer, consumerism, right? A lot of them come out of commerce. So not every human is a consumer. So their power and their scope and their mandate is around consumer, right? So if you're not a consumer, then you don't, you can't exercise your privacy right in the U.S., right? So let's say... Let's say you took a picture on Facebook. You took a picture of you and your grandma on Facebook. You put it on Facebook. And what? Maybe she doesn't want her picture on Facebook. What rights does she have in the U.S.? She has no rights <laughs> whatsoever, right? If she was in the EU, she has rights because she is a human, right? And that's why those laws are are based. So the gap that we have is that not every consumer. Not every human is a consumer. And so a lot of the problems that we have in our laws are around that. But then also, for whatever reason, I think another reason why it's hard for us. Well, there are three reasons. Three reasons why it's hard for us to get privacy federal on federal level in the U.S. One is there's a constant battle between the state's rights, right? The preemption of federal and the state's rights or whatever, even though Federal and state are different. State can do things that federal can't do, vice versa. So it's not a one for one type of thing. I don't know why we even fighting about this. And then the other was a private right of action where corporations definitely don't want that. A lot of legislators do want that. And that's, it seems to be different among party lines, I think. But then I think the third reason is, you know, the GDPR and a lot of ways that Europe passes laws in my view, tend not to be as prescriptive as U.S. So I think it's, it, it is more narrowing to create prescriptive laws, but it also creates a lot of gaps and it's harder, I think, to pass prescriptive laws. So like in the GDPR, they say, well, don't collect data, only keep data for as long as it's necessary. Right. So it doesn't tell you how to do that. Right. Where the U.S. and like CCPA, they're like, put a button on your website that says this. <laughs> Yeah. So I think that type of law is harder to pass than just, oh, you know, do this. But businesses want more prescriptive laws, right? Tell us to do this and we'll 
through AI, we're punching the numbers or whatever, where we're saying you, you know, be thoughtful about it, you know, do something reasonable for your organization, ask these questions. And that's harder to do, right? Because you're, you're like, oh, just tell me how to do, like, tell me to do the dance steps instead of like make your own up. So, yeah. Yeah. So do you have any hope for federal privacy law in the U.S.? Oh, God. I think it may happen eventually. I'm really interested to see what's going to happen in 2024 because, well, first of all, 2024 is an election year, so there will not be any federal privacy, anything past this in 2024 because of that, Mm -hmm. right? Because the legislators are trying to get reelected, so they're not going to be bothered with this, right? Uh, But... In 2024 in the U.S., there are going to be a lot of state laws going into effect. So in 2023, I think there were five state laws went into effect. And I think in 2024, I have to look at the numbers. I don't know, 11, 13. I don't know. I can't remember the, the number, but it's, it's a massive number, a lot more, just say double what went into effect on a state level in the U.S. So I think by then, people would just pull their hair out and be like, really, like, I don't care what happens. We need a federal law. I, I don't think that it's going to be very comprehensive if we get a federal law. I think it's going to be very thin, but I'm fine with thin. You know, maybe thin is something that we can build on. For me, I think we should forget about the preemption and forget about private right of action and just harmonize the language. You know, personal data means this in 50 states, you know. Breach means this in 50 states. Uh, you know, I think that would go a, a long way to help companies be able to figure out, um, you know, what their obligations are and at least to harmonize and not spend so much money uh, on trying to, to do this patchwork thing. The one thing that I, I truly roll for for federal privacy law is that it's not written in seven days. You know, that it takes the time to sit down, actually talk to the people who know privacy and who know what they're talking about, talk to the consumer protection groups, you know, talk to the technologists who understand privacy and how the internet works, you know, and then go from there instead of doing some kind of quick slap and dash type of thing, you yeah. know, actually think through it. But, you know, who knows whether or not that's actually possible. Yeah. And one thing I'll say the BIPA law, you live in Illinois like I do. A lot of corporations don't like that law, right? They say, first of all, they get a lot of pe- fines from that, even though I think it's one of the most simple laws. I swear, right. I think it's, is it four pages? It's like very yeah. simple, right? But I think the thing that BIPA has done is so different. And to me, it, it aligns with, I, I'm pretty sure it, that they didn't do this intentionally, but it aligns very much to me with the European way of thinking around a human as opposed to a consumer. So that's why companies don't do not like it. They've been trying to get it, you know, re- revised for a long time. It's not working because they're they're looking at it through a consumer lens where it's more of a human law. Right. It's basically saying, hey, if you have a data, if you have data of a human you need to let them know. You need to tell them how long you're going to keep it. You, you know, different, different things like that. So just like in your grandma, my grandma example, if you're, you're, uh, you took a picture of you and your grandma from a Facebook at Illinois, your grandma would have rights because <laughs> yeah. she is a human. So that is the difference where some people in legal, they look at it from a consumer lens and they want to try to winnow it down to that. And it's just not that type of law. And even 
in the proposal for for the most recent proposal for a federal privacy law with the ADPPA, it cannot preempt BIPA. It cannot preempt that law because it's not a consumer law. <laughs> it is a human law. It's wild how many businesses are upset about BIPA when there's like three things that you need to do to comply. It's so and it's four pages. <laughs> But I mean, if, they, if you're thinking in a consumer lens and you never have to think about it in terms of a human lens, I can see how you, I call it the BIPA ditch. Like, don't fall into the BIPA ditch, right? Yeah. So it's like, I'm like, seriously, let the person know where to collect, why you're going to collect it, tell them how long you're going to keep it, and then just follow through. That's it. Yeah. That's yeah, like, okay. it's extremely simple. It's not that hard. I, I think so too. Well, let me ask you one final question. Um, so the California Privacy Protection Agency said that they're going to review the data privacy practices of connected vehicle uh, manufacturers. CPPA taking a closer look at this. Well, there are a couple things. First of all, you know, connected vehicles, that's IoT, right? Internet of Things, which is that's a good thing that they're looking at that. The, the issue around IoT is that it, these devices don't just do one thing. They do multiple things, right? They may be subject to multiple laws, and they may be doing all types of collection. A lot of the collection happens in connected cars. You don't think about it, but a connected car is like a computer on wheels, right? And a lot of times that data, not only is it collected, so your computer has your well, car has many hard drives and things it collects, but then that data gets transmitted wirelessly to who knows, who knows, who knows who, right? And some of that isn't for the operation of a vehicle. Some of it isn't for safety, right? Some of it is to sell like to insurance companies and different things like that. So I think it's good that they're definitely taking a look at that. And I think a lot of other states will probably follow suit once they see Maybe they want to wait and see what happens with California on this. But I think one thing that companies need to realize that they haven't really got the message yet. They, they don't understand because they've not seen it yet. So I think a lot of companies think that they can hide in plain sight. So they're like, okay, if I'm not Google or I'm not Facebook, you know, they're not going to come after me. Like, but the future is a lot of these agencies are, are leveraging more advanced technology. Almost like think about your tax return. So if you didn't turn your tax return, IRS knows, right? They're not going to be like, oh, well, we don't know who didn't file. Like they know who didn't, right? So in the future, they're going to know who whose practices weren't up to snuff or whatever. And it's not going to be hard for them to see people who aren't complying because right right now you have to put, you know, these things are on websites. They're, you know, you're you're mandated to put these policies together, but now we have technology that can see, okay, these people are out of compliance. You know, send them an automatic letter, right? Where before you'd be like, okay, it's like a group of lawyers going through websites, looking at stuff. That's just not the way it is. It's like all this stuff is going to be automated. It's going to be put in a way where you cannot hide and play inside anymore, right? You're going to get a letter <laughs> from somebody. Uh, and these, these states are coordinating with one another on how to do that because part of that is revenue generating, right? So, yeah. yeah. Well, let's just hope you and me don't receive any of those letters. Yes, yes, exactly. So, Debbie, thank you so much for speaking with me today about the history of privacy. For anyone listening, make sure to subscribe so that you do not miss our next episode. Thank you, Debbie. 
Thank you. This was wonderful. You're wow. You're a wealth of information. And I love the fact that you went back to the history. So I'm a total nerd about stuff like this. So this is great. Thank you.